Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more Hemisync podcasts, such as episode 8 with Dean Radin, podcasts that aren't necessarily associated with any particular Hemisync product, but simply feature fascinating guests and subjects associated with the frontiers of consciousness research and understanding, please consider joining our exclusive Patreon page and get some great discounts on Hemisync products in the bargain. Thanks for watching. So, Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, your new book's called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. Um, highly encourage you folks to go out and get it. Um, I guess, you know, I kind of came to your attention because of the pods I had done with Dean Radin and Bernardo Kastrup, um, two guys that you uh, reference pretty extensively in the book. Um, and you have kind of combined a lot of evidence in support of this idea of material or of idealism, which is in contrast to kind of the prevailing orthodox view of uh, materialism, which is that you know holds that consciousness comes from matter, um, and compiled it all all in one place. And some of this information um, I've seen before, some of it I, I haven't, but you've put it together in a way that I think is really accessible for an average lay reader. Um, while retaining a lot of anal analytical rigor, um, which I would expect from you. Um, and so just want to kind of get, well, to start, just kind of understand sort of your personal story a bit, because as I understand it, your worldview was kind of changed pretty rapidly in the last couple of years, right? Having been introduced to the science that has changed your mind about how reality works. Yeah, so my background, typically when people hear what I do, yep. they, they wonder how I became involved in consciousness. Yeah. Uh, my, I'm a partner at a firm in Silicon Valley called Sherpa Technology Group, and we advise technology companies on their business strategy and on transactions. Prior to my current role, I was with UBS in New York doing investment banking during the financial crisis. And prior to that, I was at Princeton where I was captain of the tennis team. Uh, but back in college, I actually had an interest in astrophysics and decided not to major in it because I was busy with tennis and I just couldn't have done both. So I had big questions a, a while ago, but they were brushed aside. And what I thought the science was teaching me was that life has no meaning because consciousness comes from our brain. And when our body dies, that's it. Our memories are gone. So it's very difficult to come up with meaning in life without really rationalizing it. And yeah. so I understood that and just thought that's the way things were. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it was about two years ago that things shifted for me for the first time where I, initially it was just podcasts that I heard where people were describing things that one might call paranormal, like communicating with the deceased or psychic abilities or working with energies that I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, I didn't take it seriously at first, mm -hmm. but it, after independent accounts, I began to wonder if something was up. And that led me to look at science, and then that spiraled pretty quickly once I realized how much was out there from places like the U.S. government and from Princeton even. I didn't know about this when I was there from the University of Virginia and a number of other credible places that ultimately led me to, to write the book. So you're right that it's only been about two years since I first became interested in these topics. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And so would you mind talking about what pods you were listening to and kind of how you fell into that? Because like even the subject matter you were listening to does not really fit with, um, you know, kind of what we typically associate with investment bankers and Wall Street types, <laughs> of which yeah. I must confess I come from that um, lineage as well. But uh, yeah, what's what exactly were you listening to that, that turned you on to this? 
Okay, so the first podcast I heard, it was on a podcast called Extreme Health Radio. Hmm. So it was a health podcast. And it was the next one in the queue, a woman named Laura Powers, who is a psychic and works with energies, and she was just telling her story. And I remember at the end of that episode, she described her own podcast called Healing Powers, where she interviews other people who have had similar experiences. So I remembered that and said, hmm, well, I'm looking for a new podcast to listen to when I drive to work Mm -hmm. from San Francisco down to the peninsula. So I just turned that on and would leave it on in the car. And I just remember it piqued my interest after hearing enough episodes where I I became very, very interested. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is history, I guess. Interesting. I I think that's one of the great things about the proliferation of podcasters now. I mean, at least here in L.A., it seems like everyone has a podcast and everyone's asking each other to come on their podcasts. And I'm probably guilty of that as well. But um, this is, you know, part of the uh, uh, the impact that it's uh, that it's having on society. Um, Cool. So was there any particular piece of data that started to really convince you that maybe this materialist view of the world wasn't kind of accurate. I'm often asked if there was one thing that kind of tipped me and I view it more as a gradual process where I'd hear something and it would push me away from my old world view of materialism Mm -hmm. and then I'd kind of forget about it and go back. And then Mm -hmm. I reached reached a point where I saw enough of this other evidence that I couldn't reconcile my old world view with it. Mm -hmm. But that said, I think there were probably events and pieces of information that pushed me more than others. Um, and, and some were actually personal experiences of weird coincidences that I couldn't reason as much that were, that they were random. Mm-hmm. But also, I experimented working with different psychics and energy workers okay. like, over the phone sessions because I was researching. And I'm like, okay, well, then some people should be able to do something mm-hmm. that I can't explain. And there were people that could do things that I couldn't explain. So uh-huh. it was just confirming right. the research that I was doing. All and right. Interesting. All made sense. It, would you care to elaborate on any of that? I, I'm intrigued. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think of the, the best examples because uh-huh. there's so many. Okay, so the, this was a good one. This was with a, a medically focused medium. So she sees things, but medically. Okay. So we did a phone call, and I wasn't, I mean, I, she didn't know anything about me. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks before I called her, I had an irritation, I think, from shaving around my jawline. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'd forgotten about it because it went away. She, on the phone, one of the first things she says is like, I need you to go in front of the mirror. And she had me point to the exact location where I had that irritation. And I wasn't sure what it was. And she was like, yeah, it's some kind of inflammation thing. But I'm like pointing, I'm looking in front of the mirror. And this woman has never even seen me. Hmm. Nor could she have looked something like that up. And of all things to say, to have me point in the exact location. So when you combine that with many others, uh, it it made sense. I'm like, okay, something's up. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, And so... The evidence you've compiled in the book really is exhaustive, and it kind of runs the gamut from precognition to remote viewing to psychokinesis to near-death experience. Um, To me, the problem with changing people's minds about this has not been lack of evidence. Um, It's really kind of more been the, the idealist worldview seems to be held to a different scientific standard than other theories. Um, w- would you tend to agree with that? Or do you, do you think there's some other reason why the overwhelming data hasn't really been accepted or even given proper or e- even given a uh, proper hearing, really? Yeah, I ask myself this every day. I, I think this alternative worldview that puts consciousness in a central role mm-hmm. is one that is 
counterintuitive to our day-to-day experience and particularly an experience that's biased by our eyes. Yeah. And I think we are just anchored to that. So to move away from things, from what our ordinary perceptions teach us is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's number one. And then I think separately, I would say that part of what I'm trying to do in the book is definitely to open the scientific community up. I know many have tried and we'll see if I'm successful or not. Yeah. But beyond that, I think there's a whole body of people who are kind of like me two plus years ago who just hadn't been exposed to any of the information. And I'm not, And I'm not talking about people who are heads of science. These are just maybe people who are on Wall Street or people or athletes, just people who have never been exposed. Yeah. And I think that group of people could be very opened up to alternative possibilities because they might not have this standard that is, seems quite ridiculous. And right. I'll give an example. Um, Dr. Jessica Utz, who I mentioned in my book. The statistician. Statistician, the yeah. 2016 president of the American Statistics Association. Mm-hmm. So I'm putting my business hat on and saying, like, if this woman is saying something, she's credible in that field. Yeah. In 1995, she was commissioned by CIA, uh, by, by the CIA in the U.S. and Congress to look at psychic phenomena because there was a program that had been going on. What she says in her report to Congress and the CIA is, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. Yeah. It's, this is this is your point. We've used the standards applied to any other area of science, and yet it has not been accepted. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the evidence for the phenomena is, I mean, there's all sorts of four and eight sigma events, and just kind of for the layman. So, like a six sigma event would indicate an odds against chance of something like a billion to one. So, you know, highly improbable that these observed phenomena are due to chance. Um, but it seems like nobody is willing to accept it, or one of, the, one of the main reasons why some of the skeptics won't accept it is because the mechanism for which these phenomena occur cannot be explained, um, which is not really a fair standard because there are other theories out there that are not held to that standard, and yet they're pretty broadly accepted or at least have gained a lot of currency within the scientific community. Right, and even things that we accept in the mainstream, that we we accept them as being real and we have no understanding for how they work. Mm-hmm. I mean, many diseases, cancer, we don't understand how some of these things work. Yeah. Yawning, there are all kinds of bodily functions that we accept as being real and we don't yet understand the mechanism. Yeah. And I, I think in many areas, we first understand that something is real and then we move to understanding how it could be real. And mm-hmm. for some reason in this area, it has not worked that way yet. Yeah. And, you know, some of the folks that you point out, you know, I guess I'll pick one because I listen to his podcast, but Sam Harris, for instance, who I think is a really sharp guy um, yeah. and makes a lot of good points and is worth listening to and is actually a proponent um, from what I can gather of consciousness being fundamental. Um, yet at the same time, there are these kind of what to me seem like internal inconsistencies in some of his arguments where He's out to debunk or to debunk some folks like Evan Alexander and his near-death experience, um, and one of the ways that he does it, which you point out, is that by the very fact that Evan Alexander remembered his experience, that that in and of itself must be evidence for his brain being turned on. I, I mean, what, do you sort of agree with that argument? Right. I don't personally agree with that. It's a circular form of logic right where, where he's he's saying that well the brain produces consciousness i already know that he's taking that as a given and yes. given the fact that there was a memory it must indicate that the brain was on right <laughs> right right yeah so there's a lot of that that you that you run into um and so that's just kind of i think one good um example to point out 
Yeah. Um, what I'm trying to do is to just expose people to the fact there are that there are multiple sides to this. There are some yeah. very smart people like Sam Harris, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Very, very smart people who have differing opinions on this. Right. So it's not to say that these individuals are not intelligent and they're not contributing. It's just yep. that like in any area of science, we have debates and certain people are on different sides of it. And it's yep. a matter of getting the ideas out. Yep. And lots of these folks, I think, actually argue in more or less good faith as well. Um, in in most cases, I I guess <laughs> I won't go I I won't digress too much from that. Um, but one of the other things that you highlight that I think is interesting and important, um, you know, in cases uh, involving the manipulation of the random number generator, for instance, um, you talk about how the um, researchers emphasized the importance of mindset in terms of the um, study participants' ability to impact the random number generators. Mm -hmm. um, it, what do you make of that? Well, I think, number one, it's an area that we need to explore further to understand what makes someone more or less able to have an impact on physical matter. And one of the observations that the researchers from Princeton have, have made is that it seems like when people are relaxing almost, they're, able, yeah. they're better able to do it. And maybe at first they're doing well, but then they start overthinking it and then their performance goes down. Yeah. So even within this field of mental abilities beyond what we can physically see, there are variations and then there are factors that we don't fully understand. And this right. is really what I'm trying to get at and what I think others are too, is to say, let's accept that these phenomena are real so that we can start studying them and yeah. understand the nuances and how we can apply them to our lives. Yeah. I, I actually thought that was interesting personally, because having dabbled with PK myself, you know, psychokinesis, like you do find that when you're trying too hard or trying to, you know, do it, it doesn't work so well. I mean, whether it's trying to bend spoons or lighting a light bulb, when you're relaxed and you're kind of playing with it a little bit, that's when things tend to open up and happen. Um, and so it was interesting to see it borne out in uh, some of the data. Um, and then one of the other things that you point out, you know, again, kind of sticking with the importance of mindset here and really the, the quality of consciousness, um, is that with people that have experienced near-death states, um, you know, critics of these um, folks often, you know, point to, well, lack of oxygen in the brain or delusion or something along those lines. But most of these folks actually present as being hyper-rational. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, if you had asked me again two plus years ago, I would have said, isn't the near-death experience just a hallucination? The yeah. brain is creating some kind of a pleasant state to compensate for the fact that you're about to die. Yeah. Right? There are all kinds of reasons that we could come up with that are theories. But it becomes very difficult to argue that when people are having non-hallucinatory memories during the time that their brain is either off or highly impaired. Um, so there's often an argument of, well, the experience is happening. Yes, we agree that people are, are describing these things, but we can't prove that it happened exactly when the brain was off. Mm -hmm. Number one, there have been some studies. For example, Dr. Sam Parnia's 2014 study in the Resuscitation Journal, there was one of his... Uh, the subjects in particular who had, was in cardiac arrest who described very specific things that were time-stamped as being during the time he was in cardiac arrest and when his brain should have been off, number one. But even if we say, well, maybe there's some residual firing in the brain that is allowing these experiences to happen, even that is really problematic for the conventional view of the brain because in order to produce something so lucid as what is described, we would expect much more brain functioning than something that is currently hidden to our our modern tools. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't, I don't really buy that argument either. It seems most likely that what's happening is that we are uh, opening up in the near-death experience to some broader reality or dimension that is typically filtered out by our brain. Yep. And what do you think of the kind of overall argument around, um, you know, brain function or, uh, you know, these enhanced states being uh, correlated with increased brain activity versus reduced brain activity? Right. And this is a point Dr. Bernardo Castro has made many times yep. where we see a reduction in brain in brain activity that is correlated with heightened or enriched conscious experience. So the near-death experience is one. You've got a brain that's either off or almost off, and you mm. have an enriched experience that people call realer than real. Yeah. Um, psychedelics, very similar. In a 2012 study, there was reduced brain activity in subjects who took uh, psilocybin, which is the, the, the psychoactive chemical in magic mushrooms. Mm. So people were taking the psychedelic, they were having a psychedelic trip, and there was reduced brain functioning associated with heightened experience. There are a number of other cases. Savants are another example. They have impaired brains, and yet they have extraordinary abilities in other ways, memory, mathematics. So this matches with the idea that the brain is like a filtering mechanism, and that by closing the brain down a bit more or, or making it less active, we are somehow exposing ourselves to a broader reality that we normally filter out. Right. This is actually, I think, a somewhat old argument that um, Aldous Huxley actually made originally in Doors of Perception, and it seems that the data is now starting to bear that out, that the, the brain actually acts as a reducing valve um, for this kind of larger consciousness system or experience that we're, we can gain access to. It's a really important point because I think I would have said two plus years ago, and many people say, well, don't we know that there's a relationship between the brain and consciousness? Doesn't it mean that consciousness comes from the brain? Like no. you take a psych medication and people have a change in the way that they feel. Yeah. They get in a car accident and then they lose their memory. Like, we don't we already know that the brain is producing it? Yeah. All we know is that there is a correlation. There's a relationship between the brain and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And what you just described of this reduction in brain activity is placing the brain in a different role as a filter rather than a producer. Right. And as any good finance guy knows, correlation is not causation. <laughs> I think the history books are going to look back at this one yeah. and say, oh, my goodness, they just assumed causation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind of <laughs> implicit in many of the arguments in support of materialism. Um, fascinating. So out of all the data that you've compiled in this book, do you have any favorites? I mean, I know that you talk about kind of the bundle of sticks metaphor, um, where it's, and you, you sort of already touched upon this earlier, that it wasn't kind of a single thing that changed your mind. It was the accumulation of the evidence, kind of building this thesis brick by brick. But yes. do you have any favorites out of these bricks or sticks? I do. I'm going to mention okay. those, but I, the sticks argument is a really important one. And that's yep. the reason I felt comfortable writing this book, mm-hmm. is that we can... Put, we can make controversy over any particular study or meta-analysis, but when you put them all together, I think it becomes unreasonable to conclude without evidence that each study is fraudulent or that someone was lying. So it's yeah. the accumulation of evidence that I think makes it so powerful, even though there's powerful evidence individually. Mm-hmm. And so if, if someone asked me to say, hey, Mark, you have two minutes, tell me the best evidence. Yeah. I like to start with the CIA documents that have been recently declassified. Mm-hmm. They talk about remote viewing. So this yeah. is a, a U.S. government program for more than 20 years where they use psychic spies to use their minds to right. view something remotely. So meaning they're not there and they're seeing things with their eyes, remote right. viewing. So this is Stargate. 
Stargate, yes. and it's been called a number of different names. There's yeah. controversy over it's, did remote viewing was it proven or not? Yeah. There are documents that have been recently declassified, and I will give you a direct quote from the document. Hmm. Remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Yep. So and, I don't know what the counter to that is. Yeah, and so this is a Department of the Army document, right? I, I believe that was the um, the uh, institution that commissioned this study, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I downloaded it directly from the CIA's website. It's, yep. it's completely flat. It says, evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. Mm -hmm. And so some of the folks that were participating in this study, you actually reference in your book, like Joel McMonagall, um, Russell Targ, I think, was also associated with it, Ingo Swan, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, these are all preeminent remote viewers, psychic spies, um, and that is probably my single favorite data point as well. Um, very cool. So in terms of um, changing belief systems, you make the argument that funding more research is unlikely to change minds, because again, we already have a plethora of four to eight sigma studies. Um, and I tend to agree with that. Um, the evidence is already overwhelming. But in keeping with this bundle of sticks idea, is it your hope that by compiling all the evidence in one place that you might persuade people through what is essentially a meta-analysis, right? It's an analysis of analyses. Mm -hmm. Well, that's my aim. I think that was partially my aim. Another aim was to expose people to these ideas who have never heard of them. I mean, I had never heard of remote viewing before. Yeah. I didn't know what that was. There yeah. are a lot of very smart people in the world today that have never even heard of these things. So mm -hmm. I think exposure is step one, to know, hey, these things have been alleged to exist, mm -hmm. and this is the evidence that's been out there. But beyond that, in terms of trying to shift minds to the extent that that can happen, I do think that this meta-analysis approach, at least for me, that's the way my mind works, mm -hmm. where I have a hard time breaking the bundle when you have that many sticks. I can break any one stick, maybe. When you put them together, I think it's difficult to do. So yep. I guess we'll find out if it's successful. And so are you a proponent of funding study to um, try to better understand the mechanism by which these phenomena happen? Totally. I'm a proponent of studying everything okay. in this area because I think it's a whole area of science that's being swept under the rug, and we yep. don't know the kinds of advances we'll find, whether it's continuing to prove that certain phenomena are real, even though I think we already have, yep. or just understanding the mechanisms and how that might relate to yep. many things. So what if that's not findable, though? Do you think that places an undue burden on the idealist position that you know, some other positions, I don't know, like say the many universes thesis, like doesn't have to support, like no one's trying yeah, to find I, the mechanism, right? I think it does. I think it yeah. does. I think it's worthwhile to try, but it's an, I think it's an undue burden. And, but on this point of idealism, and again, Bernardo Castro makes this point extremely well in his work, the, the most skeptical position metaphysically we can take is an idealist position because all we can actually ever know is something yeah. that's within consciousness. Anything that exists outside of anyone's consciousness is, by definition, not provable. Because yeah. we need to consciously experience something to fully prove its existence. So it's so ironic to me that the most skeptical position is the one that is being resisted most by, by a community that would argue that it's skeptical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually um, the position that you can find something outside of consciousness is actually the one that requires the leap of faith. Exactly. 
to, to presume that anything exists outside of consciousness is by definition not provable. And Albert Einstein, as I mentioned in my book, he acknowledged this when he was debating uh, someone in around 1930. He yes. said, I cannot prove that my conception is right, meaning materialism, but that is my religion. In other right. words, he acknowledged there's a leap of faith. I just think there's something outside of consciousness, even though I could never prove it. Yeah. And so there's an example of a really smart guy. Uh, um, so, uh, and he was actually bothered quite a bit by some of the things that were happening with quantum mechanics at the time, which he called spooky action at a distance. Um, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Great minds have struggled with this. Yes, yes, because it, like we, we discussed earlier, it's not, it's counterintuitive. And counterintuitive yeah. things can be disturbing, but we live in a reality that we are learning more and more is not in line with our common sense. So it's hard to kind of shut off our common sense mind and say, wait, other things are possible. Yeah, um, one of the great quotes that I think you had in the book, and it was, I think, your own words, um, and I'm probably going to uh, bungle it here, but something along the lines of, um, you know, we perceive reality to be linear um, and Newtonian, basically, and it's actually the opposite. It's nonlinear and nonlocal, and um, that is very hard to get your head around. Right, right. I, the way I describe it, it, this is in chapter three, uh, we, we view reality to be linear, Newtonian, and fixed. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, it's nonlinear, quantum, and relativistic. Yep. And we know that that's not even a controversial statement, I think. I think science would acknowledge that that's true. Right, right. Um, when it comes to our everyday reality, though, our, or, or our everyday experience, it's very difficult to um, come to grips with that. And one of the really interesting studies that um, you called out in the book, maybe my second or third favorite data point here, is the people that were studying for an exam um, and had improved results, which you would expect if you study for an exam, but what was weird about it is they studied for the exam after taking the exam, right? right. Or that's, that's essentially the study, right? Right. So basically the future is having an effect on the past. Right. And this is something we see in a number of phenomena. Again, highly controversial if you mention this to anyone in the mainstream. But when you combine the results from studies like that and also studies where people are looking at an image, but they don't know what image will be coming up and they right. get their bodies responding seconds before, right. it is suggesting almost that consciousness is reaching forward in time, yeah. which actually makes sense under this alternative perspective where consciousness is beyond space and time. And mm -hmm. now we're somehow empirically able to pick it up, whether it's through performance based on future studying or if it's a future picture that is shown. Right. And so this stuff like doesn't compute and it sounds kind of crazy. And when researchers submit this to respected journals for peer review, like they don't want to touch it. Um, and that is kind of part of what we're um, up against here. Yes. Although I, I will say, and I, I mentioned this in, in chapter one, I'm so glad the study came out before I finished, before the book went to print. But there's a study in the American Psychologist Journal, which is the official peer reviewed journal of the American Psychological Association by Dr. Dr. Etzel Cardenia, which looks at meta-analyses for all these types of phenomena, for precognition, remote viewing, telepathy, et cetera, and they publish the article. Um, and it acknowledges the, that there is an effect here. It's a big deal. That's great to hear, that, and that is a very big deal. Um, and so this is all kind of, this has all come together very rapidly for you. So you were kind of first introduced to this, you know, what you call groundbreaking science in the summer of 2016. And here we are in kind of the fall of 2018, and you've not only changed your mind, you've written a book on this. So this obviously must be very important to you personally. And I'm curious, like, what, 
what do you think is the most significant implication um, to bringing about this, you know, what you call an end to upside down thinking? I would say the most, there are many implications, but the most significant to me is the way that it can shift one's outlook. And the reason I decided to write a book was that I started to tell friends about this information and they told me that the impact it had on them was very positive. And especially over time as the idea sunk in. I mean, sometimes it would be having a dinner and people would say, Mark, I keep still, I think about those studies you told me at dinner and I can't get them out of my head. That's what led me to sit down and try to write the book. And I, I actually sat down over 4th of July weekend in 2017, which was a four-day weekend, and wrote more than half the book that weekend. I basically no just did my inter- investment banker style, just built <laughs> my apartment, books everywhere, yeah. cranked Up all night, yeah, okay. As much as I could, I couldn't do what I used to do in investment banking. I had yeah. to go to sleep for a few hours, oh, but I was yes. going nonstop. And then um, I finished it over the next few weekends. So it, wow. you're right, this was extremely rapid. I came out of July 2017 with a book with no prior plans of ever writing something. Wow. And so in terms of the change in worldview that this can bring about in people, would you say it's similar to what some NDEers report in terms of um, being less materialistic, less competitive, less fearful of death, um, having some greater concern for others and for, you know, an appreciation for life or a sense of purpose? Is that kind of what you're talking about or? Yeah, absolutely. And I I also think many people have a lingering fear of death, whether it's just under the surface or explicit. And what we're talking about here is, is the notion that the physical body and the physical life is a, a, a just a speck within a broader spectrum of existence, mm-hmm. and that the consciousness that we have does not die when our body dies. So for many people, that can be a major relief. For some yeah. people, they've said, well, actually, that's not relieving because now what I'm doing matters. So that's <laughs> more of a burden. <laughs> uh, no, that's, a, that's a fair point as well. Um, yeah. Great. Um, so you've still got a day job. I mean, you're still an eye banker. How are people receiving this in your world? I would say it's still new, and I'm yeah. waiting to find yeah. out. All right. We'll see as more and more people read it. I mean, as of the recording date, the, the book's only been out for a week and a half. Yeah. Well, look, I think it's awesome. Um, I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's probably the best uh, collection of evidence all you know gathered in one place that I've seen. Um, I hope you folks go check it out. It's called An End to Upside Down Thinking by Mark Gober. Um, you can check it out where in bookstores near you, Amazon. You have a preferred location? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, and bookstores near you. Also, my website, which is just my name, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, has more information on my book. And also, I will be coming out with my own podcast, uh, which similar to yours, Garrett, I, I'm interviewing many people like I've interviewed Bernardo Castro and Dean Radin and yeah. many of the people I talk about in my book. So hopefully that'll be out in a few months. Cool. We'll uh, look for that as well. So hope this helped. Um, if you guys found it interesting or worthwhile, please give us a like, uh, share it up. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you, Garrett.